Welcome to the Jungian Anthology Podcast, Analytical Psychology Seminars from the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. Understanding the meaning of alchemy, Jung's metaphor for the transformative process, with Murray Stein, Ph.D. This episode is part one of the series Understanding the Meaning of Alchemy. It was recorded in 1992. During the last 30 years of his life, Jung turned to alchemy as a fundamental source for depth psychology. In alchemy, he found images and thoughts that were uniquely fitted to his perceptions of psychological life that confirmed his views of spontaneous activity and directedness of the unconscious. Jungian analyst and author Murray Stein presents an overview of Jung's work on alchemy to develop an understanding of the relation of alchemical symbols to the analytical process and individuation. The set includes the following lectures. Commentary on The Secret of the Golden Flower from the Collected Works Number 13, Psychology and Alchemy from Collected Works 12, Parts 1 and 2, The Spirit Mercurius in Collected Works 13, The Psychology of Transference in Collected Works 16, and Mysterium Conjunctionis in Collected Works 14, Chapter 6. Murray Stein, Ph.D., is a training analyst at the International School for Analytical Psychology in Zurich, Switzerland. His most recent publications include The Principle of Individuation, Jung's Map of the Soul, and the Edinburgh International Encyclopedia of Psychoanalysis, editor of Jungian Sections, with Ross Skelton as general editor. He lectures internationally on topics related to analytical psychology and its applications in the contemporary world. Dr. Stein is a graduate of Yale University and the University of Chicago and other and the C.G. Jung Institute Zurich. He is a founding member of the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts and Chicago Society of Jungian Analysts. He has been the president of the International Association of Analytical Psychology and is presently a member of the Swiss Society for Analytical Psychology and president of the International School of Analytical Psychology, Zurich. And we'll have a link in the notes to the complete series, as well as a link to all the lectures by Dr. Stein. We're going to spend the week together and become alchemists, or at least psychological alchemists, I hope. And uh, I want to encourage each of you to read as much as you can of these texts uh, if you haven't already read them in preparation for the course to be busy about it during the week because we will be really uh, considering these texts uh, in some detail and basing our discussion on them these are extremely interesting profound but also difficult texts to read and uh, so if you don't get it through the first time, I've been reading them for 20 years, and each time I read them, there's something I didn't see before. And, ah, that's what he's up to here, and that's what he's trying to get at. And it takes many, many readings. It's like reading poetry or the Bible or something like that. The, the texts are, as Jung said about a lot of his writings, double-bottomed. And there's a kind of superficial level that you might think you get and then you read it again and you see other resonances and oh there's something else that he's really after and so there are many layers different things going on in the text and nuances and we'll try to pick up some of those 
in the course of the week. So our discussions will be text-based. Each day has a text assigned for it. I don't know if we'll get through all these texts. We certainly won't get through them in detail, but we will try to stay on schedule so that today we will consider the text called Psychological Interpretation of the Golden Flower, and tomorrow we'll look at uh, Psychology and Alchemy, which is volume 12 of the Collected Works, parts 1 and 2, focusing mostly on part 1. On Wednesday, we'll look at Jung's essay, The Spirit Mercurius, Thursday, The Psychology of the Transference, and Friday, Chapter 6 of Mysterium Conjunctionis, Volume 14. Uh, before we start with the first text today, uh, Secret of the Golden Flower, I want to put these writings, all of them, into a context of Jung's overall opus, his life and work, so that you know where he is in his life and sort of what's going on, what's come before. Just get that up on your screen. You've all been through basic concepts. Some of you have gone through the um, certificate course. So you have a sense of the timeline of Jung's life and where he was, uh, what he was, uh, his age and so on, what he was doing at various points. So I want to locate these texts on that timeline of Jung's uh, career, his life and work, before we start. And I want to start out by saying that what Jung did with alchemy was to appropriate it for psychology, for psychological discussion. Uh, and you must keep in mind that he was not a historian of science. He wasn't trained as a historian. He wasn't interested in being a historian per se, historian of science, which are usually the people who read alchemy and study it. They put it in the context of the history of science. First there was astrology, then alchemy, and then chemistry and science. There was an evolution of attitude and thinking in the West, the Western world, that finally ended up with scientific chemistry. And alchemy was a precursor of that. So those are the people who are usually engaged in these texts and, and study them and think about them. Jung was not interested in uncovering uh, a uh, a piece of the history of science and discussing it as a historian would. So he, uh, nor was he interested in using uh, alchemy to discuss uh, history of religions or philosophical ideas and their development in the West or in the realm of the occult or something like that. He's appropriating this area, alchemy, the alchemical writings that date from the early centuries of this millennium, starting in the first, second centuries, and uh, in the Western world, culminating in the Middle Ages and then going into decline after the 17th century, when science began and chemistry took off and so on, and was after that relegated to the occult and, and to the backwaters of Western thought. Um, so these, these texts uh, that that Jung is becoming so fascinated with at this point in his career from 1930 on um, uh, are um, play a role in his thinking and an increasingly important role in his thinking from 1930 on afterwards but we have to say that every text ultimately is about psychology he's doing psychology in these texts he isn't practicing alchemy. He isn't interested in the his, 
history of science, history of religions per se, although he includes that material, but really he's interested in saying something about psychology. And uh, you, that's the thread, as you read the alchemical texts, always to pay attention to what is Jung saying about the psyche and about psychology. Well, then the question becomes, what has alchemy got to do with that? Why introduce alchemy at all? Is alchemy to be seen simply as a metaphor for psychology? That isn't quite right with Jung. Uh, it's more like alchemy is an amplification, but why use alchemy instead of fairy tales or myths? Or other places that Jungians reach to when they want to do when they want to amplify something psychological. Why was alchemy so important for Jung? So that's something we'll want to think about. And I won't answer that right away. I think Jung hints at it uh, in the foreword to the second German edition of the essay on the secret of the golden flower, and we'll look at that in just a moment. Um, before about 1930, Jung didn't mention alchemy very much. I tried to do a, just a quick glance through the collected works uh, that were that are made up of essays and books that he wrote before 1930 <clears throat> to see if in the index there's any reference to alchemy. And it's a little hard to tell from the collected works because Jung went back and rewrote things sometimes. And so there, for example, in, in volume 12, I mean in, uh, in volume 5, that was written in 1912, uh, the uh, uh, Symbols and Transformation of, of, of the Psyche, uh, or symbols of transformation in the collected works now, you will find a few references, mostly in footnotes, to alchemy. But alchemy was not an interest of Jung's before about 1930. I mean, a serious interest. Uh, not nearly as much as, say, Gnosticism was an interest, or Eastern religions, or uh, the Upanishads, or something like that. Alchemy really... Uh, did not catch his eye, catch his attention, until he got this document from Richard Wilhelm, the Chinese alchemy text on the secret of the golden flower, and was asked to write a commentary on it. That was about 1928, I think. Published with Wilhelm in 1929, Wilhelm translated the text from Chinese into German, and Jung wrote a psychological commentary on the text. And it was his engagement with this text that really turned him on to alchemy, he says, and there's no reason not to believe him. And we'll try to see in the whole week that we've got ahead of us, why is alchemy so important to him? Why was it such a tremendous fascination? And it was an incredible uh, flowering of uh, intellectual activity and interest in his life. Now keep in mind that in 1930, Jung is 55 years old his career is pretty much behind him. I mean, most people are thinking about retirement by that time and moving to Arizona and playing golf. Uh, this was not on Jung's program. But nor was it on his program, I'm sure, that he would produce the massive amount of work that he had uh, that, that lay ahead of him in the next 30 years, uh, most of which is either on or about or heavily involved with alchemy. Uh, there's hardly anything he wrote after this period, after the age of about 55, where he doesn't bring in alchemy in an important way. And um, 
But by 1930, you know that Jung had uh, all the major pieces of his theory in place. He had uh, the theory of the complexes, which he developed very early, before 1910, basically. He had the whole Freudian thing behind him, theory of repression, theory of the unconscious, relation between conscious and unconscious that he works out in his two essays in analytical psychology that began about 1916. He has psychological types out of the way, published in 1921. He has the theory of archetypes in place. He has the theory of libido finished, written in 1928. He's got a major psychological theory all in place, all finished, all done by the time he starts alchemy. Well, he should have if he's going to be a a, a major psychological theorist by the time he's 55, he better have it in place. So what he's doing after that, from 55 till he dies of 86, is filling in, detailing, deepening, and that's what he uses alchemy for. And what is the deepening? Uh, mainly his theory of the collective unconscious, which is his major contribution to psychology, the theory of the collective unconscious, and that's why alchemy is so important to him, and the theory of the self. Those are the two main uh, features of his theory that he's going to spend the rest of his life building up, detailing, adding evidence for, uh, uh, writing extensively about. He doesn't do any more work on psychological types of any significance. That's done, 1912. He doesn't do any more, 1921. That, he doesn't do any more work on the theory of complexes of any major significance or really on the theory of the archetypes. That is pretty much all done. But what he's doing now is detailing and bringing evidence to bear. He wants to beef it up uh, to show that, um, uh, or to make the case more convincing uh, that the archetypes do exist, that the collective unconscious is a reality, that the self does develop uh, toward consciousness over the course of an individuation process. He has to detail all this stuff. He can't just say it happens and it's there. Now he wants to show you how it works. And, um, and he's learning as he goes as well. He learns much more about the self. Before 1930, he hardly uses the term self. If you look in the definitions of psychological types, he published in 1921. In 1921, he wrote a book, published a book, Psychological Types, that contains everything he knows about psychology to that point. It's a tremendous compendium of his understanding of the psyche, the dynamics and structure of the psyche. It isn't just a book about the psychological types. It's a book about the dynamics of the psyche. Everything that he knows by 1921, he puts in that book. And at the end of the book, he has a chapter called Definitions. And there he defines all his terms extensively. He's got four or five pages on soul, for example. He talks about the anima and the animus. He talks about the shadow a little bit, lots on the ego. But the term self is not included in 1921. He does not have that term yet. Now, when you pull psychological types off your bookshelf, like I did this morning, and you go back in the definitions and you look up self, you will find an entry. But it was included when the Gesammelte Werke, the collected works, were put out, which was in the 40s or 50s, whenever that was in German, I'm not sure. Uh, 
in, in English, of course, the translations came along a bit later, a decade or two later. But he added that, and there's a little footnote that says he did, he added the term self later. So in 1921, he did not have the term self. It was a discovery that he made in the 20s. Uh, or he came upon the concept of the self uh, in his own thinking and the evidence for it in his dreams and the dreams of patients and the individuation process and how that is wrapped around this concept of self, which is something that he details very carefully in these alchemical texts. All of that still remained in the future. Uh, <clears throat> but it was in the 20s sometime, and I don't know exactly how this came about, that the concept of the self became dawned on the horizon and then became more and more important until it became an absolute obsession. It occupied the center of his thinking after about 1930-35. And it culminates in his last great works, Ion, where he has a, a chapter called The Structure and Dynamics of the Self, the last chapter of the book, and in the last great work, Mysterium Conjunctionis, where again he dumps more or less everything he knows about alchemy and psychology in a grand summation. Uh, but the concept of the self it is the central driving force in this late work. And we'll see how he picks it up in The Secret of the Golden Flower and how that's a thread that will follow through all of these texts as a major uh, feature of his thinking. And I think one of the reasons that alchemy was so important to him was that he saw in the alchemical fantasies and thoughts the same thing that he was grasping for in his earlier psychological work and his own inner experience, and that is the center, the archetype of unity and wholeness that he talks about so extensively. And uh, all the paradoxes that that brings into play when you try to apply a concept like unity to something as complicated and diverse and pluralistic as the psyche, uh, how do those two things fit together? You know, is the psyche made up of complexes, archetypes, a pluralistic system that sort of hangs out there like a group of planets? Or is there a unifying factor that organizes it, that pulls it together, out of which it comes, to which it goes, which it orients itself around? That's what he's going for. He wants to find that center and elaborate it. And that's what comes onto the screen in full flower in Ion, written, published in 1949. Just one more note, uh, and that is that it, to, in my research and thinking and, and reflecting to this point, I think Jung's first glimmer of the notion of the self came during his midlife crisis um, and is reflected in a paper that he wrote and didn't publish ever in 1916 called The Transcendent Function. He put it in a drawer in his desk and it was lost and forgotten until he died when it was retrieved and translated and put into the collected works. It's in volume eight, I think, of the collected works. It's called The Transcendent Function. It's a little paper. 
in which he talks about, I think, just the first glimmerings, the first experience that he had of this thing called the self. So that's 1916, about the same time that he had the seven, he received the seven sermons to the dead, that Gnostic text that we won't discuss here, but that was a very important uh, intuition, revelation, if you will, straight out of the unconscious of his whole psychological system that he would then have to elaborate in, in theoretical and empirical terms in the rest of his life, the second half of his life. But it's been, it's been noted by many people that the seeds of his whole theoretical system are in the Seven Sermons to the Dead, which, as I say, came to him uh, over a period of about three days of almost automatic writing in 1916. That's also when he wrote this paper called The Transcendent Function. And then he uh, had a dream in 1928. It's called the Liverpool Dream. And it's the dream that concludes this chapter on the confrontation with the unconscious, 1928. So between 1912 and 1928, Jung was in this liminality period intensively at first and then much less in the 20s. But it, he, he, he ends it. He, he says the termination of it came with this dream, the Liverpool dream. And in the Liverpool dream, there is a symbol that uh, of a, uh, a um, place in a city, a circle, five or six streets coming to it. And in the center of the circle, a fountain with light shining on it, a square and a circle, and we can read through that dream in a little while, but that for him was a, an image of the self that came to him as a, as a dream, and it'd say a lot of his work on alchemy was an amplification of that dream and his um, later reflections on the self. Um, now, all of that puts this work in, in fairly personal terms, that Jung is working out his personal salvation, so to speak, his own coming out of his own unconscious, his own dream work, his own uh, experiences with patients, having to make sense of all that. And Jung himself did say, after all, that every psychology is a personal confession at some level. Uh, and that's certainly true here. But there is another side of Jung that we shouldn't give short shrift to, and that is Jung the scientist. And that is a side of Jung that is not very much appreciated in our time because he, he was not a scientist in the way we think of scientists in a laboratory running experiments that can be replicated and so on. But he was a scientist in an earlier sense, maybe a sense that will come back someday, but uh, in the sense of what Jung himself called uh, the empirical method. Uh, I just recently found out that um, when this book was published, Memories, Dreams, Reflections, it was a collaborative effort on the part of Jung and uh, Anelia Jaffe. Uh, 
she's more or less the author of the book. He talked a lot of, and she wrote it down and, and actually wove all the pieces together and created the book. Without her, we'd, we wouldn't have this document. But certain parts of the original manuscript were not included in the publication because the family objected to portions. And I always thought, oh, that's that Tony Wolf story. They didn't want that in there because it embarrassed the family. It turns out that a missing chapter that, uh, if the family's permission can be obtained, will be published, uh, is on Jung's relationship with William James. I have no idea why that was not included. I don't know what was controversial about it or why the family objected to it. But in that chapter, according to people who've read it and told me about it, Jung talks about a visit that he paid to William James after meeting him with Freud in 1909. Remember, they went to, uh, to Worcester, Massachusetts and gave the, gave the um, what's the name of the college there? Clark, Clark University. Clark University uh, gave the lectures there together. On that occasion, Jung met William James. But the story is that he came back to the States on a secret trip and spent like a week with William James in Cambridge. Now, if you read William James on empiricism, radical empiricism, so on the empirical method, varieties of religious experience, there is an uncanny similarity in approach to what Jung does. And when Jung says that he's an empirical scientist, gathering evidence, sifting it, sorting it, not making judgments about it, putting one piece beside another, listening to witnesses, listening to the testimony. Uh, don't pathologize it, just listen to it. Put it out there and, and sort it and see what you've got. That's William James. That's the empirical method. So when Jung says, I'm an empirical scientist, he's following William James who was, uh, in addition to being a medical doctor and a psychologist, a very great philosopher, probably the greatest philosopher America has ever produced. And certainly highly respected in continental philosophy in, in Europe, more than he is perhaps in this country now, where philosophy has taken this other turn, very technical and analytic and uh, so on, as following other trends in philosophy in the English school and so on. But uh, when Jung uh, claims to be a, a scientist, I think we have to take him seriously in that sense, that he really did feel that he was pursuing his investigations on a solid scientific foundation. And that has to be put over against his, uh, a too personalistic interpretation of his work to say that, well, he was just working out his own psychological issues, you know. He needed to heal his soul, so he was all fascinated with images of union of the opposites because he was so split himself. Well, there may be that, uh, that aspect to it, uh, but there is another, beside that, there is this person who is investigating um, material out there in the public domain. Other, he often invites other people to come and look at the material, look at the evidence, collect it yourself. What do you find? Let's compare findings. Uh, the scientific side of Jung. And that's there from the beginning. 
if, uh, if you believe his autobiography anyway, that he wanted to be a scientist when he was a little boy. You know, he didn't want to be a magician or a, a witch doctor or he wanted to be a scientist. Um, so a lot of people have projected the magician on him uh, later, but his self-identity uh, was very much wrapped up with the whole scientific, Western scientific uh, opus. I'm a scientist, among other scientists, doing science. Now, science is in the public domain. Everybody can come and participate if they're smart enough and learned enough and want to take the time to do it. It's out there. We can discuss it and talk about it. It is not private. It isn't esoteric. It's exoteric. And Jung wanted his work to be exoteric, not esoteric, not to be a little private club where people get together and groove on you know, these wonderful intuitions. Uh, he wanted it out there. If you can prove that I'm wrong, I'll listen to you. Okay? I want truth. That's what Jung is after. I want the truth about the psyche. And the closest he ever got, he felt, to saying the truth about the psyche is to say it's a paradox. The psyche is a paradox. And we'll be looking into that a lot more as we go along. That's the bottom line. The final truth about the psyche is, as Jung could discover it through his own introspection and investigation of the materials was it is a paradox. It isn't one thing, but it isn't two things either. It's one thing and many things. It isn't one and it isn't many, it's both. It's a paradox, okay? So that frustrates rational thinkers. Is it one or is it many? Is it good or is it bad? And he'll never say it, it is one or the other. He'll say it is both. It's a paradox. Um, Okay, now let's look at this particular text, uh, Secret of the Golden Flower, and kind of go through it. And I thought maybe what I'd do is um, give you a summary of it, and then you can uh, lead the way and we can discuss points of interest in it, okay? As I said, The Secret of the Golden Flower is a Chinese alchemy text that uh, was discovered by Richard Wilhelm, who contacted Jung, wrote him a letter, and sent him a copy and asked if he would be interested in writing a commentary. And they published this book together on The Secret of the Golden Flower in 1929 in German. Uh, Richard Wilhelm unfortunately died a year or two later, and... Uh, uh, Jung wrote a very touching uh, memorial to him. Richard Wilhelm was responsible for bringing the I Ching to the West, which has become such a popular work. The Wilhelm trans tra tra translation still is a standard translation. Jung wrote an introduction to that. And um, these were the early, very exciting days of discovering the wisdom of the Orient uh, in Europe. And um, Jung has quite a bit to say about the fascination and the dangers of that in this in his commentary on this uh, document it went through several editions and in the second edition uh, second edition in 1938 Jung wrote a foreword to it that is interesting and important in understanding his relation to alchemy so it's, it's rather short but it I think it gives the essence of his, of the point of view of Jung the scientist um, 
he says that alchemy, now by 1938, he'd gotten immersed in European alchemy, Latin and Greek alchemy. He didn't ever do very much more with Chinese or Oriental alchemy. This is the only time he really engaged that, but he became extremely interested in uh, Western alchemy uh, to the point where he built up one of the three or four greatest alchemical libraries in the world. Uh, it's still housed in his home in Kisnacht. The family hasn't been able to give it to the Jung Institute there because the Institute can't afford to house it and take care of it properly. It's extremely, extremely valuable. So next to the Mellons, uh, who got interested in collecting alchemy because of Jung and gave their collection to Yale University where it's, where it's housed, Jung's collection of alchemical texts is world class. And if you look in volume, is it 19 or 20, uh, the collected works where they, uh, it's a general index and they list all the citations, all the, all the books that Jung ever uh, cited in his works. Look under alchemy in there, and just in references, alchemy, and you'll find five, 10 pages or so, small print, one after another. Uh, of the alchemy texts that he would consult and, and uh, footnote or use in various ways in his work. So by 1938, he was in the thick of alchemy, but Western alchemy. And he writes this forward to the second German edition uh, from that vantage point. Now, 10 years have passed since he, since he wrote the uh, commentary that we're going to focus on here. But there, he does uh, put forward the notion of why alchemy is so important to him. He says it's because of the parallels between what he can find in the alchemy texts and his own psychology. Now he says he's been studying archetypes and the collective unconscious since 1913 when he broke with Freud. Okay. Um, so that his, his theory of the archetypes and the collective unconscious have been around for a long time, but he says also they reach out. If you pursue the study of the archetypes and the collective unconscious, you very soon leave academic psychology and medical psychology, and you're into questions of religion and philosophy and history and, and world religions and so on. And so uh, that led him out into these other domains to try to find comparative material now, he's always looking for comparative material because on the one hand, he's got his observations in the clinic over here, his clinical practice, his own dreams, the dreams of his patients, their processes, the transference process, all that very private, locked up with his modern patients over here. But he finds trends, he finds images, he finds themes that he thinks aren't just personal to them. And as he goes deeper and deeper into this impersonal layer of the, of the psyche that he calls the collective unconscious, these themes and motifs start sounding like things that have been around forever, a long time. You can, you can hear them in, in the religions of the world, in the mythologies, and the fairy tales. So that's what he means, that reaches out past academic psychology. When you study psychology in the university, you don't study fairy tales. If you study psychology at a young institute, you, you know, you get into the Tibetan Book of the Dead, maybe in your first course. What is that? What's that got to do with it? Well, that's because of the collective unconscious, you see. That reaches out past 
how does the how does the uh, you know the TAT work, or how do you do statistics on so on and so forth that you study in academic psychology or in med medical psychology? So he's been looking for comparative material. He wants to find parallels, and he says he first thought of the Gnostics. Uh, uh, that opens up a whole discussion on Jung and the Gnostics. Suffice it to say that he was drawn to the Gnostics because he found parallels there to the fantasies of his patients too. Let's put it that way. That in the Gnostic uh, speculations and experiences and descriptions, he found images and themes that struck him a lot like what he was finding in his clinical practice and his own personal work. So he looked to the Gnostics, but he says they're too limited, and you get too little reporting of the primary experience. You get a lot of philosophizing and, uh, and, and metaphysical speculation, but you don't get much description of the actual experience that the Gnostics were having. What was the vision? What did he say to you? What did you say to him? Uh, what was the dream like exactly? And so so on. So there wasn't much imagery in it, and mostly uh, speculative philosophy. Also too fragmentary, he said, and too ancient and far away. Well, they, the texts that he had to work with were very fragmentary, and uh, the study of Gnosticism has changed a great deal since Jung died because of the discovery of the Nag Hammadi texts. And so now there are actual uh, intact versions of the ancient texts, which Jung didn't have accessible to him in his time. If he were alive today, he might find those very interesting. I don't think he would have abandoned alchemy particularly for them, but I think he, he would have found that there's a lot more there than what he had to work with before. Now, so anyway, the Gnostics weren't satisfying, and he couldn't get too far with them. And then came the Wilhelm text, Secret of the Golden Flower, and he says this furnished the missing items because this led him to the study of alchemy in the West and in medieval alchemy, he says, he found the missing link. Were they looking for missing links then already? I guess, sure, after Darwin, everybody's looking for the missing link between the animal kingdom and the human kingdom, right? So there's that term. He found the missing link between gnosis, that ancient speculation about the cosmos and so on, and modern depth psychology. Alchemy is the missing link that ties this tradition together. And what ties them all, all three together, gnosis, alchemy, and modern depth psychology, as he practiced and experienced it, is that they are all based on and reflective of and bring up into consciousness the collective unconscious. The collective unconscious is the layer that underlines, underlies all three of these disciplines. And the same collective unconscious that the Gnostics were experiencing in their visions and the alchemists were experiencing in their laboratories, modern man and woman experiences in the psychological laboratory of analysis depth work, when you start paying attention to your dreams, intensively delving into the unconscious and active imagination and so on, you unearth the same kind of material. 
Now, of course, psychology, he will say, is going to deal with the material in a very different way from the way the alchemists and the, and the Gnostics dealt with it. The Gnostics would believe it as a religious doctrine. The alchemists would project it into matter and try to make gold out of it, uh, unless they were very sophisticated philosophical alchemists. And whereas in analytical psychology, one tries to make psyche out of it, make consciousness out of it. You don't treat it as a faith statement or a belief system. You don't externalize it into the world and try to enact it or act it out, but you try to contain it and build consciousness out of it, build a new kind of conscious attitude out of this material. So uh, psychology is a, is a kind of container in which the material can be received, held, and transformed. Well, that receiving, holding, and transforming is something that he found very much in common with the alchemists, except they did it out there instead of in there, the way in psychology one pursues it. But they had their containers, their vessels, they filled it with material that was supposed to have this magic property, this magic substance in it called the prima materia, and then they tried to transform it in the container through their operations and watch it and observe it until it came to its final culmination in the gold, which was the highest value or consciousness or uh, what Jung would call realization of the self. Only for them, it was all it all remained outside. For Jung, this is all going on, but it's inside. The gold is inside; it isn't outside. The self isn't projected anymore. So when we get to his statement about the five levels of consciousness in the Mercurius document, you'll see what he means. It, it becomes an inner process rather than an engagement with objects in the world around you, whether in the social world, in the material world, in the chemical world, or anywhere. It's an inner process. Now, by picking up alchemy and studying it so intensively, Jung claims that he is doing science. Uh, and not particularly therapy or comparative religion and so on. And he, he says, the, what is the science? Well, he says that the concept of the collective unconscious is, quote, an empirical concept to be put alongside the concept of instinct. Unquote. So he's got this scientific intuition, and don't let scientists tell you that they don't operate on intuition. They've got to. You know, they've they wake up in the middle of the night and they've got an idea. Well, they have to go out and test it. How how can you find out if it's true or not? It's just an idea. It's a notion. Maybe a good one. It may be a lousy one. You don't know until you get out there and look around a little bit and and put it through some tests and ask some other people and see if anybody else has done research on it. Well, Jung's intuition was that there is a collective unconscious. And he wants to verify that. And he thinks he can verify that by looking at the alchemists, for instance. You know, because the alchemists, he's not influencing them. They're, they're, they're long since gone. But if you can find parallels between modern fantasy and their, material, their fantasy materials, you've got 
a little bit of evidence there to say, yeah, this same kind of ideation, the same kind of mental material can be found in two completely separated, uh, uh, you know, they didn't influence each other, one didn't cause the other, they're completely separated in time and space, and yet they're coming up in these two different contexts, that's evidence that down there underneath, driving this ideational process, is this thing I want to call the collective unconscious. This is a basic substratum of the human mind that produces certain kinds of fantasies and ideas. In every human being, no matter where they live, no matter when they live, they're going to come up with something like this if they let the psyche speak, either through projection, dream, fantasy. It will just burble up, bubble up with this stuff. And so he's trying to prove that. He's trying to prove, uh, get empirical evidence that the collective unconscious exists. And that's what alchemy is so good for, he says. I think that needs to be taken seriously. Jung really did think he was doing that. And um, I think there is a, a, a uh, Jungians are not noted for their scientific efforts. Uh, they're great interpreters, they're great scholars. Some of them can think their way out of a paper bag. Others are so intuitive, they throw themselves to the ground and miss. Uh, they're known for their intuitions. They aren't generally known for their scientific endeavors. And I think Jung would be disappointed in a way that the field has taken this direction, that it isn't more scientific, that we aren't doing this kind of work, that that hasn't really continued in a serious way. Uh, and that's maybe left for some of you all to take up in your future uh, opi. Is that the plural of opus? Opi? <laughs> Okay, so that is the foreword to this, and uh, I wanted to get that out there on the table before we start our discussions of his alchemy uh, texts, just to underline that we are dealing with a scientific uh, undertaking here. Well, then when he turns to the text itself, and I'm just going to summarize these various sections now, uh, the first section he calls difficulties encountered by a European in trying to understand the East. And uh, Jung, uh, even in this time in Europe in 1930, in the 20s, 30s, and so on, they, it was much like, uh, or, or significantly, uh, surprisingly like California in this sense that there was so much interest in Eastern religions and people were starting to practice techniques of yoga and meditation and uh, becoming very enthusiastic about adopting the ways of the East because these texts were just beginning to seep into Western culture and they were very interesting. The teachers were coming around, the gurus were beginning to appear and they were drawing great followings. And uh, so you had various movements uh, that uh, Jung objects to quite strenuously going on like this. He's not a new ager. He didn't believe in it. He didn't think it was healthy. He didn't think it was a good thing to, to go wholesale over into another culture. Well, we'll, we'll think about why not uh, as we go along here, but he, he advised against it. 
uh, on a number of different grounds. Uh, but he says the difficulties of a European trying to understand the East. Now you have to underline understanding. Jung is about understanding, not experiencing or getting into their, you know, their thought systems, but understanding them. He says that Western science, with which he's identified, is distant and detached and looks at objects from a distance whereas Eastern, the Eastern views are based on experience and built up out of experience. So that uh, for Westerners to come at it from the point of view of a scientific attitude, they often can't understand it very well at all. So naturally, then they'll want to go over into the experience side and experience it, which Jung also advises against. So is there another way for a Western scientific type person like himself to grasp this, to make some sense of it? And that's what he's going to try to do in his commentary. He says Westerners either uh, imitate the East, or uh, which they shouldn't do and must not give up their scientific attitude. The problem then is how to grasp and understand the text without undervaluing it and saying it's all nonsense, it's not scientific, or overvaluing it, going over too far the other way. Well, this middle approach uh, is what he has to offer. Modern psychology offers a possibility of understanding that is not based on doing the yogic practices, nor is it too distant and too uh, unempathic. It's an in-between position. And how is he going to do this? Well, he says there is a parallel. Now, again, he's working with parallels. And remember his fascination with parallels. He wants to find grounding in the wider world, in the general human world, or out there beyond his clinical experience for what he's discovered inside his clinical experience. He says there's a parallel between the content of the Chinese text and the psychic development of modern European patients. Okay, there's a parallel that you can see. And he says this parallel is due to there being a substratum beyond all racial differences, beyond all cultural differences, historical differences. And this common substratum is the collective unconscious. And now I quote him, which is simply the psychic expression of the identity of brain structure irrespective of all racial differences. Here's Jung, the biologist now. And he says the collective unconscious is common to all human beings because all human beings have an identical brain structure. That's on paragraph 11. Uh, the important point to note here is that... Uh, one has to, in reading Jung, one has to pay extraordinary attention to the levels. At what level are you working and thinking? If you're working at this level of the common substratum, you're talking about instincts, and beside that he wants to put the collective unconscious, the archetypes. These are common human heritage. Okay, at one point in his teaching career, he drew a pyramid 
with a bunch of levels at the top being ego and then family I think family and culture and then here is the human level and then mammal and so on down through the organic inorganic substrate this is the human psyche cut into sections and the smallest section up at the top is the ego now if you're talking about the difference between Chinese and European religion for example and experience you're talking at from this level up you aren't talking about this level you're talking about common human experience the common human denominator the archetypes the instincts you're talking about this and that's related to brain to physiology as well as to what he will say is the source of the archetypes which we went through last summer if you were in the class last summer in the basic theory you know this that the instincts are rooted in the body and the archetypes are rooted in the spirit and the spirit is common to all human beings as well as the body okay so those are the commonalities um, and when you're talking about racial differences cultural differences individual differences you're you're speaking at these levels up here doesn't deny that these levels exist nor does speaking at these levels deny the importance of these levels so while Jung is saying on the one hand we're all Chinese and Europeans we're all in the same boat together we've all got the same brain we've all got the same archetypal structures it's still a mistake for people in Europe to drop down and try to retrieve from this level what doesn't come up through their culture what they should do instead is try to evolve their own culture he's an evolutionist so he thinks that by leaping out of your upper levels and trying to get to the lower levels and drop something through an end run so to speak isn't going to produce any genuine development because these levels are being ignored you've got to pull it through up through all the levels growth has to come up from the bottom but through all the levels and touch all the levels they all have to be transformed if you make this kind of an end run you leave complexes this is where the complexes live in here and so then you get a kind of pseudo intellectual development that doesn't rest on history on personal history the complexes are bypassed and they're allowed to keep on functioning and generating their own little poisons over here on the side and so you get these new age people for example who now admit that they aren't dealing with a shadow very very well well this is where the shadow resides it's in here it's in the complexes and the ego and the ego defenses and all that material for a real development to take place it has to go through the whole system and you can't make an end run around any bits of it so that's why he's against leaping out of your culture and going to another one for wisdom pulling that wisdom in over here and leaving untransformed everything in between now he does think that happened in European culture about 2,000 years ago and that's why Christianity has never taken uh, it, it, that's why Christianity has not worked in Western culture witness the 20th century the Holocaust the two world wars the devastation in Europe it didn't actually get pulled up through the European psyche it was an end run imported from a great Eastern religion he said 
Uh, and so that whole discussion of uh, European, the European psyche and the Christian influence is a very complicated one, but that's the basic point, that the European tribes were baptized at the edge of a sword the end of a sword were forced into it and it didn't transform their complexes. The Votan element, their unconscious was left untouched. You get a superimposed layer of conscious ideals resting upon a mythological substructure that then erupts all the time and breaks through those ideals. There you've got European history in Jung's view. So it's an untransformed psyche that the European is dealing with. Uh, Um, but he's uh, so he's fascinated by the parallels between what he can find as genuine inner development in his patients coming up through all the layers okay in analysis you deal with the complexes as well as the archetypes and the archetypes as well as the complexes and you try to pull it all up together and the development that he sees the spiritual development or uh, development of the psyche, the attitude that he sees in this text from China. And he notes uh, the necessity for keeping a balance between the yang of consciousness and the yin, yin of the collective unconscious. Well, more on that later. Here's the parallel that he sees between his patients and the text. There's a modern patient who suffers a conflict. There's too much conscious development, too much one-sidedness, there's a neurosis, there's a split in the psyche, you get a conscious ego separated from the unconscious, from the instincts, sort of a typical over, overdevelopment of one-sided consciousness on the part of the patient, resulting in a neurosis. So he suffers a conflict from the opposites, which is a conflict that's insoluble in the terms given. An insoluble conflict. And then that person sits down in analysis, struggles with it for a period of time, and outgrows the conflict. And he says a new thing appears which creates a new higher and wider attitude that relativizes the givens of the conflict. But this solution is produced by fate or by time, and it simply comes about. It just happens. It isn't made. It isn't created. It isn't imposed. It isn't an attitude given by the teacher externally. This discipline of letting things happen Wu Wei, he says. That's Wu Wei, W-U hyphen W-E-I. I pronounce it Wu Wei. I don't know if that's a correct pronunciation or not. Wu Wei is the practice of letting things happen. In German, it's Geschehenlassen. Geschehenlassen is one of the three verbs that Elie Umber says is critical to Jung's approach to the psyche. Geschehenlassen. It means to let the thing happen, let it, letting it happen. And that's what he would practice in his analytical sessions. He would say, I don't know the answers to your problem. You've got this terrible conflict. You're married, but you're in love with somebody else. 
or you know you've got uh, you don't know if you should take this new job and and leave the old one because of the great risk and there's you know you make a page and you make lists of things and everything cancels everything else out and there you are you can't make a decision that's an insoluble conflict and as he says most important conflicts in life are insoluble there are no answers in the terms given and then you outgrow it something happens that relativizes it and at one point Jung tells the story of a woman who was walking to the lake to commit suicide I think it was a patient of his and her eye was caught by uh, an object in the store window a beautiful pair of shoes so she stopped and went in to buy the pair of shoes and then realized my goodness I was going to commit suicide I can't do that I've got to wear these shoes well that's the new thing that appears you see just out of nowhere and it relativizes the conflict suddenly you're in another space as we say and you see oh yeah I was so caught in that I was so trapped in it so Jung says it's like you you see the storm in the valley but you're up higher on the mountain and in the lower layers you still feel the storm but from this perspective up here you can see you get a bigger picture so you still feel the storm but you've got this little point of observation that's grown up out of the storm or you've climbed up out of the storm enough so you can see it and you you haven't it, it seems like you haven't done very much you know it, it comes by accident or synchronicity as he would say later not a term he uses yet in 1930 but it's on down the line it's something that just comes up spontaneously that relativizes now the art of letting things happen he says became for me the key that opens the door to the way you take a piece of fantasy you concentrate on it and that becomes the way it unfolds okay so you pay attention and you let it happen and eventually this creates an attitude he says this attitude of letting things happen or this it becomes an attitude that quote accepts the irrational and the incomprehensible simply because it is happening the new thing may come from the outside in an extroverted sense or from the inside doesn't really matter that is like the pair of shoes or a sudden insight a sudden oh why am I so upset about this and I had somebody come to my office last week and he'd been uh, in the throes of his marriage conflict for the last couple of weeks and he came into the office and he said I've decided I'm just gonna have fun it just isn't worth it and that it just sort of bounced out of it well he's in the lower level still suffering from it and engaged in it but there's another level that comes out and says life is just bigger than that right now that's the development of this new attitude that relativizes the conflict that's the parallel in Jung's experience to what he finds in the alchemy text the Chinese text of the secret of the golden flower a third thing grows out of the conflict something new appears a new attitude now the fundamental concepts he goes into a couple of those of the text uh, the first is the Tao that that's T-A-O it's a you know a standard uh, everybody is seen that term 
translated by the Jesuits into God. When the Jesuits engaged Chinese philosophy, they said, oh, you're talking about the Tao? That's God. That's what we mean by God. It's the ultimate term, or the way, uh, the thing that holds the opposites together. Um, so Jung says uh, the Tao is, a, first of all, a method for reuniting what's been separated, namely conscious and unconscious, and now he's beginning to bring his Western scientific psychological understanding to bear on what does the Chinese mean by Tao? Okay, how do we translate that into our experience? Well, it says the Tao is a method for reuniting what's been separated, namely conscious and unconscious. Now this reuniting what's been separated is going to occupy Jung for the next 30 years, so keep your eye on it. And it culminates in his great work, Mysterium Conjunctionis, how to reunite what has been separated, conscious and unconscious. First they are together, they're one. You have an intact primordial self. It gets divided into two. You get a conscious system and unconscious. Can't get along with each other like a man and a woman or like a dog and a cat or black and white or yin and yang. They're oppositional and they have to be brought together somehow. That's uniting the opposites. First one, then apart, and how to reunite them. So the Tao is a method for doing that. It's a method of meditation, of practice. You want to follow the Tao, here's how you do it. And the goal is to reunite what's been separated, the above and the below, the right and the left, the yin and the yang, the heaven and the earth, all the opposites. Secondly, the Tao means the attainment of conscious life, which is more or less the same as the first thing. By conscious, we mean the conscious system, and life, when they speak about life, they mean what we call the unconscious. So conscious life is the union of the two systems. So the aim of the Tao, getting into Tao, is to produce a position, a point, that unites these two, two systems, conscious and unconscious, an in-between point, okay, that has them both, a bridge that has them both in view. That's the Tao. The Tao's like water. It flows with the gradient. <clears throat> and uh, and uh, touches both shores, and so on. You can play around with that imagery. But that's the essential notion of what they're after in finding the Tao that they've lost, getting it together, pulling together conscious and unconscious systems. Now there is the notion of the circular movement. And the object of this circular movement that is described in the alchemical text, Secret of the Golden Flower, the purpose of the circular movement, which you can see in dreams quite a lot, you know, people going in circles, circles appearing, circumambulation of various objects. The purpose of the, of the circular movement is to produce the unity of these two things, consciousness and life. Life is the unconscious. Life is the great 
collective unconscious. That's life, just as it is, nature, raw. Consciousness is this little thing that comes up out of it and sets itself over against it and wants to control it all the time, right? That's the ego. So you've got, and you can't get rid of the ego, really, and just go into the water and let yourself dissolve. On the other hand, you can't control the water. So how to produce this unity of consciousness and life so that you're at harmony with yourself? You and your life are one thing. You aren't going in two different uh, irreconcilable directions. That's the point of the circular movement, to produce the unity of consciousness and life that you're in harmony with yourself. Your ego and your life, your instincts, your archetypes are on the same track. In other words, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're living your fate. You're living your life. That's the feeling of it. Now, and the circular movement is to produce this unity, which is a recovery of an original unity that you had when you were in your mother's womb before bad things started happening to you or before you started developing your splits. So this uh, unity begins in what they call the germinal vesicle. The germinal vesicle is where the seed lives before it's planted and develops. That's what we in psychology call original wholeness what Jung would call the original self and what Michael Fordham picked up on in his work on development in the early years is the notion that the individual is born with a self which then deintegrates and integrates, deintegrates and integrates to produce development. But the original wholeness is there at the beginning. And the circular movement is to recover that. That's to become like a child, but you can't, it is, that is not a regression, that's a recovery of unity at a higher level of consciousness because you've got your consciousness now which you didn't have in the same form at the beginning and when this is achieved this unity of is achieved you're in Tao that's the Tao now the Tao works with two principles yin and yang and Jung interprets those yang is the point of intensity it speaks of intensity and extensity Yang is the intensity factor, or the point, and yin is the extensity factor, or the field. Now, again, it's very interesting to compare Jung and William James here. When William James talks about the I and the me and the stream of consciousness, he says the I is a little point that hovers above the stream of consciousness. It's a point of intensity, and the me is everything that is in the stream of consciousness. So you've got these two things going on, at, but he's, of course, he's not speaking about the unconscious. William James isn't. But you've got these two things going on. You've got a stream of consciousness flowing through, and then you've got an eye that's selecting pieces in that stream, looking at them, dropping them, looking at them. Dropping. That's the way your ego is working most of the time. It's hard to just focus on one thing and let the whole stream go, keep on going. You know, that's a discipline. You tend to pick, you know, it's like fishing. You see a little thing here and a little fly there and you grab at it. That's how the eye works. Picks up a little bit of the stream, drops it, goes on to another one. So those two factors, intensity and extensity. So the intensity factor is the point. Extensity is the field. Intensity is the yang. Extensity is the yin. 
And then he says, intensity, the point, yang, is the ego. Extensity, yin, the field, is the unconscious. And together, they, they make up the Tao. And they, in the text, work a lot with a symbol of light. And Jung interprets light as an acute state of consciousness that brings into consciousness, quote, areas of the unconscious which are usually covered. That's the meaning of light, that it uncovers areas of the unconscious that are usually covered. And also, uh, Jung treats the notion of symbol here, and he says that symbols are necessary in order to communicate with the unconscious. But the only way to communicate with the unconscious is through symbols. You can't do it through discursive thinking, through concepts, through logical reasoning. So the way to lure the unconscious up into your consciousness is to use a symbol. The unconscious will respond to symbols. It's again a bit like fishing. And places that are loaded with symbols, of course, we have them all around us. I mean, our culture is full of of images and symbols, movies, uh, religions, of course, used them since time immemorial, mystery rites, uh, football games, uh, wherever you go, practically, there are symbols around. And what happens when you're when a symbol engages you, or you engage a symbol, is you start feeling things. You get emotional. You uh, your your psyche gets involved in it. It isn't just the top level of your ego, your reasoning capacity. You identify. You get involved in a movie. It matters if the hero wins in the end. You're devastated if the two lovers don't get together, or something like that. Your psyche gets into it. That's what he means, that symbols lure the psyche, lure the unconscious. And of course, that's what's happening in alchemy all the time. There's burbling uh, uh, chemicals in the, in the vessels being gazed into, studied, lure the unconscious into them, and suddenly the alchemist sees a green lion in there getting its paws cut off, things like that. I have a friend who uh, had a stroke and um, I'm not sure this is quite the same thing, but it is related to you know the, the notion of the two hemispheres of the brain. The left brain is the linear side, and the right brain is the image processing and emotional side. And uh, he had a massive stroke to the left side of his brain, so his language uh, retrieval is a problem, and numbers are a problem, uh, names things like that, that have to be retrieved from the left side of the brain. But the uh, uh, rehabilitation therapist who was working with him at one point asked him, are you a Jungian analyst? And he said, yeah, he was. Apparently she didn't know that. But she said, you know, I think I, the reason I thought that was that Jungians work with imagery so much and you have this extraordinary capacity on the right side of your brain to do things that most people don't have. It's been built up through work with images. And so he actually has made a, a, a very quick recovery and he's building 
or he can identify images and work with that kind of material much better than would be expected of a man his age whose right side of the brain would normally be rather underdeveloped. So uh, that uh, gave me the thought of a new marketing potential for Jungian, uh, <laughs> Jungian work. <laughs> I don't know if that can be confirmed empirically, but in his case, at least, there seemed to be something to it. He's making a pretty good recovery. The next section Jung calls Phenomena of the Way. And uh, he says that uh, on the disintegration of consciousness, which he sees evidenced in the text, and those are the pictures where the one becomes many, okay, like all those figures appear above the head of the meditator. He says when the intensity factor, the ego consciousness, experiences the unconscious, It can happen, or it does happen, that the ego disintegrates or deintegrates, at any rate, loosens its grip, and consciousness falls into fragments. This is what happens when consciousness and the unconscious meet. There's a fragmentation of consciousness. Now, that may be momentary, but... Uh, you can experience it in very mild ways if you just let yourself go into a kind of relaxed state and let your fantasies start appearing. You can experience a little bit of this fragmentation of consciousness. It isn't focused anymore. And uh, different things can pop up at the same time and so on. Now this fragmentation of consciousness leads to uh, if you pursue it long enough through meditation or what Jung would use, active imagination, concentrating on the images and following them, then it leads to another and another. And if you pursue this far enough, he says that psychic systems appear which are not only in the unconscious because of repression, but are original there. In other words, they aren't there because of repression. They're there because they're there, because they aren't in consciousness yet. And these bring new personalities up into the conscious world. Now, this notion of new personalities or psychic systems that exist within the unconscious is an idea that he's had for a long time. He calls them complexes or archetypal images or... In one sense, you could say everybody is a multiple personality, not in the pathological sense of that term, but in that we, insofar as we all have centers of consciousness or other personalities besides our ego personality. You can see those in your dreams. The dream figures each represent such a center of consciousness in the unconscious or another psychic system. And if you pursue them far enough, say you dream about your mother or your father, parental complex. And you pursue that far enough in active imagination, amplification, and so on, it leads you into the archetypal system, the father archetype or the mother archetype. And so whole psychic systems come 
into up on the uh, screen of consciousness, so to speak, if you delve into it, go into the into the unconscious far enough. Uh, these can even be experienced as incarnations or as revelations or, you know, um, religious experiences. And in fact, that's Jung's idea of how religions come into being. People experience the archetypes. They have a revelation, a new personality, a superordinate personality, the self or an archetypal figure. Uh, Yahweh speaks to Moses at the burning bush. What is that? That's an archetype, Jung would say. It's an archetypal force. Or a Gnostic has a vision of the Redeemer coming and uh, teaching. What is that? That's a, another personality. These aren't sub-personalities, they're super-personalities. Some are obviously also sub-personalities. Animal figures or uh, inferior sort of human beings. That is inferior to the ego attainments of consciousness, moral responsibility, awareness, and so on. Shadow figures. Uh, all this kind of material comes up into consciousness when the ego lets go of its grip on this little piece of itself. It starts experiencing some of the underlying layers. And But the downside of that is that this starts feeling less unified as an identity, starts feeling more fragmentary, a piece of things, not the whole of things not the whole thing or the center even of the whole psychic system. And Jung stresses the importance of realizing these daimons, D-A-E-M-O-N-S, it's not demons, they're daimons, that's a Greek word meaning guardian spirit. These are forces of the unconscious. And that's what the text seems to be indicating, he says, and that's what happens to people in modern psychological practice when they delve into the unconscious. These other psychic systems start opening up from below. And then he discusses two of them, the animus and the anima. And this is a very interesting discussion of animus and anima, I find, in light of modern contemporary debates about the anima and the animus theory. And he says that the animus his concept of the animus is equivalent to uh, what the text speaks of as heaven or yang. And the anima is equivalent to the earth or yin. Now the animus is a Latin word that means spirit. So when the text refers to spirit, things of the spirit, Jung is translating that as animus. When the text refers to things of the soul, that's the anima. Uh, the anima, the animus, Jung relates to logos, Greek word meaning the word or abstraction or the unifying principle behind the cosmos. That's logos. It's a spiritual principle of order and uni- unity. Indeed, yeah, it's active. It orders things, so it's a force, a spiritual force that orders the co- orders the creation into a cosmos. And the anima, Jung 
equates to eros, which is the Greek word for passion, love, feeling, connectedness. It's a much more emotional force. Uh, it's what unifies things in an emotional way. Okay? And the anima connects the meditator to the unconscious. Now, an inferior form of the anima, and here, here Jung now goes into modern European gender issues, okay? He says when the anima appears in a man's psychology, it appears in an inferior form. Instead of getting eros, you get moods. That is moodiness, emotionality. That's a symptom of a man's inferior eros function. And in this text, he doesn't say it's inferior innately. He says he would. He just says it's inferior, and you you could imply that that inferiority belongs to one of these levels, culture and family. But in a man's history and development, he does not pay much attention to his eros functions. They remain inferior. They're not developed, and instead he pays attention to his logos functions, to understanding, deed, force, ordering things in the world, so on, and that is developed in a man's psychology. So when his anima appears, it connects him to the unconscious, but it appears in the form of moods. That's the appearance of the anima in a man's psychology. The animus, on the other hand, uh, when it appears in a woman's psychology, the logos function appears in an inferior form as opinions. And this has to do, of course, with, again, these levels of culture and, and development in European society at the time Jung is discussing this, that women were not generally encouraged very much to develop their logos functions. Their function was to hone the arrows, to keep the family together, to work on relationships, to establish a relational life for themselves and, and for everybody in their world. So their arrows function was highly developed. That then belongs to the ego functioning. Their logos functioning, which is their understanding, a kind of abstract, uh, uh, disinterested, uh, scientific-like understanding is not developed, no education for it, no encouragement for it. So when, that, when their logos function appears in an inferior form, it appears as opinions. This is the way it is. How do you know? I just know. That's an opinion. Now... This isn't to say that men can't have that kind of an animus and women can't have an inferior anima either. Uh, those are not innate givens. In fact, I remember Jim Hillman telling me so years and years ago that he went to a dinner party and sat beside a man and he said it was the worst animus experience he'd ever had in his whole life. <laughs> because this man was full of undigested opinions that he just kept putting out there and affirming with great force and vigor, and no documentation, no backup. There was no reasoning behind it. That's the, uh, the inferior animus at work. Now, in the psychology of the people that Jung was working with, the men tended to have developed their logos functions and not their eros functions, and women had tended to develop their eros functions and not their logos functions. And so the animus in a woman appeared as inferior and the anima in a man 
appeared as inferior. And you could say in other cultures, in other times, and our time may be approaching that with the, our new attitudes toward education and the workplace and all of that and encouraging women and men equally as much as we can manage to uh, become conscious and take the worlds uh, of education seriously and develop themselves for the uh, careers and all of that, maybe everybody's going to have an undeveloped eros function. Say, everybody will have inferior animas and superior animuses. And their relatedness will go to hell in a handbasket. There will be no relatedness, no sense of community, no sense of belonging, no sense of oneness, everybody out for himself, everybody understanding everything very well, but no emotional attachments to anything. We might get a culture like that. So everybody will have an inferior anima and be very moody and sulk on weekends because they have to work so hard all week. Right? So you get very similar psychologies, men and women being structured in very similar ways. Now the implication of this is that men and women both have anima and animus factors. You know, Jung doesn't say women don't have logos capacities and men don't have eros capacities. It's just what is developed and what isn't developed. They both have both. But one of them tends to be more developed than the other, either because of an individual preference or because of cultural forces at work. But in the Tao, both exist as complementary opposites. And if the implication is that men and women both need to get into Tao, they both need to develop both and get them together. Right? That is the individuation task, the task of pulling together, reuniting the opposites, the anima and the animus or the eros and the logos, as much as possible, getting them both developed so that men nowadays because of the men's movement and pressure from women and the whole cultural thing, have to work on their feelings a whole lot more and try to relate better and develop friendships and how to do all that kind of work that always was done for them, traditionally and historically. And women are being pushed into animus development or logos development in a way that they weren't before. But the point is that everybody has to do the work, men and women, in developing both of these factors or get it, bringing them into relation to each other in order to achieve Tao or the union of the opposite systems because what is undeveloped tends to stay in the unconscious. What is developed comes up into the ego. So when you bring ego and unconscious together and ego begins to dissolve, it starts experiencing the inferior undeveloped portions that have lain uh, dormant in the unconscious until then. Now, the next section Jung calls the detachment of consciousness from the object. And of course, this is something that the East is really known for, producing a detached consciousness. That, is, that has not been a particular goal of Western striving, except in science where you try to get a detached attitude, that is to be truly disinterested in outcomes. You're after truth, you aren't narcissistically involved in your pet theory. So detachment is extremely important in science, putting the subject aside as much as possible, trying to be objective and so on. But it's a different kind of effort from what the East tries to achieve as detachment. And yet Jung says there is a, a strong parallel between what he 
finds happening with his advanced patients in therapy and what he sees as achieving detachment in the East and in this text. He says detachment from a psychological viewpoint hinges on breaking participation mystique, on abolishing participation mystique. Participation mystique, French term that Jung borrowed from Levi Brule, French anthropologist. And Levi Brule made the claim, much denied by later anthropologists and so on, but, but a claim that Jung found very interesting from a psychological point of view and more or less confirmed in his travels. The claim is that primitive peoples, which includes all of us in our primitive levels, but particularly peoples outside of areas that we associated with Western consciousness uh, and technology, Western civilization. Say you go to Africa, to tribes that don't know anything about Europe, or you go to um, China or India or places like that. They belong to another civilization, another group, but particularly those outside of the classic civilizations, the one that the anthropologists have gone and studied the Aborigines, the uh, South American Indians, the African tribes, and so on. Levi Brule said, what you observe is that people live at one with nature. They have not divided them, set themselves off from nature. They live in a state of oneness with nature. Now, to a certain point, even anthropologists today who go and observe can see that, or you and I can go and see that. In fact, a friend recently went to Africa and said it is really different when you get out there outside of the cities and you experience life in the villages where you know cleanliness is not a factor for example and work habits are not like like ours you work when you need something if you're hungry you go and hunt if you're not you sleep there is a, a way in which human life is modeled on animal life and this person's observation was that particularly the lion was important for these people that she visited. And the life of the lion is a life mostly of sleep, except when they're hungry. And then they get up and they go hunting, and they eat and satisfy themselves, and then they sleep. There's a lot of sleeping. And, uh, uh, you know, the instinct moves at a certain moment, and then consciousness rouses itself and does something about it, and then the instinct is dormant again. And that's the way animal life proceeds. And that's the way human life, when it is at one with animal life, in touch with the animal within. If you lived like the animal that you are, you wouldn't be here this morning on a beautiful day like this. Jung says we're totally out of touch with our instincts. We live a completely arbitrarily, from a certain point of view, set up artificial life. We get up at the wrong time, we go to bed at the wrong time, we eat at the wrong time, everything is wrong, except we're scheduled to do it that way. That's culture. But if you live with nature, if you live at one with your body, and at one with nature, you live a totally different life. Well, if you think that's attractive, go out and observe people who do it, and see if you would like to live that kind of life. You probably wouldn't. My son is actually out with the, uh, some Navajo Indians for a few months and living, taking care of a couple, and he was appalled to see what they eat. 
and they don't have any running water and there's no electricity and nobody goes to work in the morning and they dance a lot and uh, but they were eating this mutton that they have no refrigeration and the mutton was out there on a table flies all over the place for five days and was starting to turn color and they were still gnawing on it and eating it and he's backed away from it on the fourth day I think wisely but uh, that's that's the uh, but there but uh, he realizes too that they're in touch with something that he isn't and that we aren't the spirits of the land right and the dances go on for five days well if you work a schedule you can't go to a dance for five days in the middle of the week so it's it's a impossible conflict your conscious that's a different kind of consciousness well levy brule said these primitive people live in a state of participation mystique with nature, at oneness, identification with nature. Jung picked up on that concept as a psychological concept, not as an anthropological observation. But he says, yeah, I know that. I live at participation mystique with objects too. So do my patients. So do lots of people. They just don't know they are. We live at participation mystique with our families. You know, we're identified with our fathers and mothers. That's participation mystique. So while we can say from a superior point of view, look at those natives out there, look at those primitive peoples at one with living in participation mystique, whereas look at us, says, yeah, look at us. You're in participation mystique with your father. You know, I know of a, of a minister who's 45 years old. He is a minister, his father's a minister, and he can't preach his own sermons yet. He preaches his father's sermons. Literally, he gets the sermon that his father preached 20 years ago. He takes out the text and he preaches it on a Sunday morning. That's participation mystique. So we aren't out of participation mystique. We just aren't aware of it. Of course, neither are they aware of it. But participation mystique is this at oneness with the other. Now, detachment is to dissolve that. <coughs> detachment is the dissolution of participation mystique with the objects and the people in the world around you. So that uh, you and the lion are no longer one. You may be the friend of the lion, or you may observe the lion's ways and learn something from it, but you don't have the feeling that you and the lion are one. When the lion is hungry, you're hungry. You see, that's participation mystique. If you live in participation mystique with your car, and your car breaks down, you feel sick. This actually happened to me some years ago, and I realized I was in participation mystique with my car, and the car was having trouble, and I was getting very worried about a lot of things until the car got fixed, and then I felt better again. So you can be in participation mystique with your animals, you know, your pets or your family members or, uh, or, your, or your office. You know, you are identified with it. And if something bad happens to it, it happens to you. Uh, so this, this is a, a psychological dynamic that hasn't gone away. It belongs to us, and it's probably there for a good reason. That at the beginning of life, we have to bond with the world. You know, and mother-infant tie is participation mystique. That keeps the mother connected to the infant. That has good survival value that the mother wakes up when the infant is hungry she doesn't have to be roused by somebody hitting her over the head or an alarm clock she wakes up okay that's participation mystique the infant is hungry I better you know I feel it in myself and I'm going to reach out and do something about it 
or the father is in participatio mystique with his child and demands that he go to college and fulfill himself, you know, that has a certain survival value in our culture. We don't just turn the kids loose and say, you're on your own, kid. Every individual, you know, has to individuate. Uh, you know, tough, I'm really sorry, but you're going to have to pay your own way through college. You give your lifeblood for that uh, unappreciative kid to go to college. <laughs> because you're betting on the, the survival value of an education in this culture. And he's an extension of you. So uh, it, it has a function, but at a certain point in individuation and in development, one has to break that. Whether you're forced to break it by tragedy, divorce happening to you, something like that, that is a participation mystique coming to an end, a, a marriage, or uh, important people leave you or die, or these terrible things happen. Tragedies force us to become conscious and to take back what we had projected into the other. Okay, so the uh, we'll get into this later. The whole uh, analytic process is described in these terms too. First projecting, then taking back the projection. That's a consciousness-raising activity. Um, but when you do it, uh, it has a, a couple of functions. The object becomes less powerful to you because you're detached from it, but the power that you put into the object comes into, you, into the self. And so the self, the ego self, becomes more powerful in relation to the objects and less dependent on the objects, less compulsively attached to the objects. Uh, and this is a natural process of growth when it doesn't happen by intervention of fate and, and forced development. Even without that, there is a natural way in which one lets go as one ages. And you can see this in people who age well. I remember some years ago, Joe Wheelwright, who was at his 80th birthday and was starting to retire from a very active, mostly extroverted, if you can believe that for a Jungian analyst, life, said that he was now retiring and he felt like the strings that had tied him to the world were snapping and in the last years he's retreated to his ranch in California and one hardly ever hears anything of him. I mean, it's a tremendous enantiodromia into the opposite in his old age, but it is that the, what he had put out into the world and held him to the world and attached him to it and kept him and the world around him going so well for a long time came to an end and now he was taking it back into himself. Well, that enriches the self on the one hand, makes it stronger vis-a-vis -vis the objects, but the object world also becomes less important. And that is what the East recognizes as detachment, that the object world is relatively unimportant. It comes and it goes and you're born and you're reborn and a hundred million years are but a blink in the eye of Brahma and the Buddha comes every 10,000 years. I mean, the, the sense of time, that sort of detachment that the East has cultivated and is known for is something we just have a little bit of a taste of because we don't really cultivate that kind of a detached attitude. But in the individuation process, as Jung observed it, happening naturally over a lifetime, it does happen too as a person goes through all the stages, lives life fully at each stage, then as 
the later stages evolve, there is a breakdown or a um, severance of participation mystique with the world, an enrichment of the self, the inner life, and all of this can be seen as preparation for death, actually, of the final letting go of life as the, the ego has known it in this time-space scenario within this body. Now, what this does, uh, is uh, by in, in this letting go, breakdown of participation mystique and taking back projections, a new center of awareness or a center of consciousness develops that Jung says is a midpoint between conscious and unconscious. It's outside of participation mystique, but it observes the world. It isn't unrelated to the world outside or the world inside. It's an observation point. So it can observe what's going on, Wu Wei, letting things happen, whether they're inner things evolving, fantasies, dreams, inner figures, dialogues, or happenings in the world around. And this midpoint between conscious and unconscious, no longer caught in participation mystique, is what he calls the self. This is also what he talks about in that essay that he never published, 1916, The Transcendent Function. It's that midpoint between conscious and unconscious. It's an observational attitude. And he says this attitude, when it becomes solidified, a conscious attitude is, quote, beyond the reach of emotional entanglements and violent shocks. Well, you can see that's a very advanced person. I don't think any of us would claim that. I don't think he claimed it. Uh, but it is something that can be approximated and that you feel in certain moments, maybe. It isn't there as a stable attitude, but in your so-called better moments, you can achieve something like this sort of balance and detachment. Uh, that is what Jung calls the self at this point. Now he's going to, this is just a point which then opens up into an incredible structure of uh, theoretical detail in, in Ion some 20 years later. But at this point the self is a point, an attitude that bridges conscious and unconscious, is not involved in participation mystique, characterized by detachment, and is beyond the reach of emotional entanglements and violent shocks. Now he does go on to say that this is an instinctive preparation for death and also that even for people who achieve this to some measure they continue suffering in the lower levels. Okay, there's always a, a, an amount of participation mystique that continues unless one really achieves full Buddhahood in this lifetime or something like that. <clears throat> uh, what kind of 
Not based on participatio mystique, but based on empathy, compassion, but the conscious attitude of caring, but not an identification with the object. And so if the object goes down the tubes that you're caring for, you can let it go. You know, it doesn't give you an emotional shock. So you get these people like Mother Teresa and so on, people who have achieved a high level, we would say, of development and consciousness, whether she is has achieved it or not, we project that onto her, okay? And these are people who can work with others who are not going to make it without getting too involved in that fact, you know? They're involved in intransigent, uh, impossible situations that are never going to change in their lifetime or probably anybody's lifetimes. Poverty, illness, despair, all of that. Able to work with and care for and be compassionate with that without identifying with it. If you identify with it and the patient dies, for example, you know, you practically have to quit. You know, you can't go on. You are so affected by it. You, you receive a shock from it because you've been in participation mystique. That is different from the compassion of the Buddha who comes back to save all sentient beings until they are all redeemed and they can all enter nirvana. Uh, that is a a stage of relatedness above, so to speak, participation mystique. We begin with participation mystique, reach detachment, and then as you say, there is this splitting of the paths. Some go on into nirvana directly and prepare for death, and others reach back and uh, deal compassionately with the world. The fulfillment that is described in the text, Jung speaks of the die is spoken of as the diamond body the spiritual man uh, the Christ within self detachment these he says are all equivalents so that we're all basically on the same path and this is his co conclusion whether you're in a Christian tradition and you speak of the Christ within whether you're in the Taoist tradition and you speak of the Tao whether you're in a Buddhist tradition and speak of achieving the Buddhahood, enlightenment, consciousness, whether you're in analysis and you speak about uh, breaking participation, mystique, becoming conscious, everybody is on the same path, he says. So it must come from this level down here. There must be a point, there must be a, a source in this brain level, in this common human level, that drives this movement toward what he says is consciousness, building consciousness, or developing this midpoint position, or this state of detachment, or this state of enlightenment. There's something in the basic human organism that he says is instinct, is archetype. It's wired in. It comes with the, with the organism, and if you let the organism flourish, if you let the human being flourish in any culture, that will make its appearance in a slightly different form. It may come out as Taoism or Buddhism or mysticism or psychologism or whatever, but it's the same thing. That's the claim he's making. We're all working on the same project in some way. 
And so this is, it comes out of this underlying substratum, the collective unconscious. Well, that's what he's going to want to talk much more and much greater detail about is the individuation process later in his writings. And this is a preliminary sketch of what he's going to detail a great deal later. And I've run out of time and I've got to run. So I'm sorry we didn't have any time for discussion today. But we'll try to reserve some tomorrow to discuss this text and the one that we've got on the agenda for tomorrow. As I say, psychology and alchemy and concentrate mostly on part one. If you have time to read both parts, great. This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, www.jungchicago.com. Thank you.